Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Howdy, y'all. Howdy. 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 comes from John 11. There is 44 verses, so bear with me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called his twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that you will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said on this account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this night and the ability that we have to gather together in a season of busyness and, and chaos, Lord, that we can take time to gather together and rest in your presence, Lord, here tonight. Uh, I pray for ways that your spirit has moved over the past weekend at, at Fall Conference, uh, both in the growth of knowledge and growth of community with one another. Uh, I pray also for the ability for students to come together just to fellowship and experience rest and, and such a great conference and retreat that we have here at RUF. Uh, Lord, I ask that your spirit would move again in hearts tonight uh, as you speak to your servant, Austin, Lord. Uh, and I ask that uh, as we go up from this place that uh, we glorify you in everything that we say, do, and think. To your Amen. Thank you, Mitchell, uh, for reading a very long passage. Uh, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, look, welcome to RUF. Uh, man, fall conference was a blast last weekend, uh, so I hope you'll have a really restful fall break. If you, if you weren't able to go on fall, to fall conference, that's okay. We're going to have winter conference coming up. More details to come, okay, so don't worry. Uh, I don't know what our theme is going to be. Maybe a bear down for winter con. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, so, uh, look. Welcome to RUF. If this is your first time walking through the doors of All Faith Chapel, we're really glad you're here. We also love having guests join us, and I want to draw attention to my parents. They're here tonight. So uh, please say hello to them. Uh, they would love to meet you. Yes. Um, look, we just want to say this. Here at RUF, we want this to be a place, and we want this to communicate to anybody who walks in, that we, we want you to know that you are... You never stand outside the need of God's grace. You're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace. But you're never so bad that you stand outside the reach of God's grace. And we always want to communicate that and make sure that you all know that. Um, and so whether you have a really hard week or whether your fall break was just not what you expected or you love the way your fall break uh, looked, we're glad you're here. We want you to come and for this to be a safe place where you hear the gospel whether you are convinced of the true claims of Christianity or you're unconvinced. Uh, so welcome. So if you've been with us, we've been walking through our series uh, in the Gospel according to John and examining John's claim that he wrote about these events as an eyewitness so that you would believe in Jesus' name and that by believing that you would actually have life in it. Because what, what we've already seen, if you've been with us from the very beginning of our series in John 1, is that Jesus is life itself. Like the water he turned into wine, that he is life that never runs out. That he's the only one who can give us new life through spiritual birth. That he's the life that actually frees us from our shame and guilt. That he's the bread of life that is eternally abundant. That he's the light that brings eternal life to the darkness of our hearts and to the darkness of this world. And tonight, what we're going to see is that tonight is a turning point in our gospel. Because what we'll see is that the full extent of Christ's power and the full measure of what he came to do for sinners is becoming clear. But so is the depth of his opposition that he will face. So tonight, life comes face to face with death. And John 11 is like a scene from any good movie or book where the hero and the vil villain finally square off for the first time in the story. 
One of my favorite examples of this is the iconic interrogation scene of Christopher Nolan's movie, The Dark Knight. Right? You've seen that movie. There's a scene in the movie where the lights come on, come on in the scene. All you see is Joker's face. And Joker's like squinting because of this white, bright light. And then suddenly, bam, out of nowhere, Batman slams his head into the table. And you have this intense, iconic scene where there's no sidekicks, no policemen, no henchmen, just Batman and Joker, good versus evil, the protagonist and the antagonist, finally face-to-face -face with no interruption, knowing all the while that this is not the last time that they're going to meet. And this is what we're about to encounter in our, in our passage tonight. That the climactic turning point in John's Gospel is that Jesus, who is life itself, is about to stare down the enemy death face to face. And this encounter it paves the way and is a foretaste for the supreme moment when Jesus finally deals with death once and for all at the end of, God, of the Gospel of John. So there are four features. We can't cover everything tonight in this passage. It's a very long passage. But there's four features of this passage that I want you to consider tonight. Okay, Four W's for those who are note-takers out there. Jesus is waiting. Jesus is weeping. Jesus' wrath, and Jesus' win, W-I-N, okay? So Jesus waits, he weeps, his wrath, and his win, okay? So first, Jesus is waiting, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 11 begins with the mention of, of three of Jesus' closest, closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus has fallen seriously ill, so ill that messengers are sent by Mary and Martha to find Jesus. And when Jesus hears the report, his response and reaction is not what we expect. It's actually kind of alarming. Because the messengers say, said, the messengers say, Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus replies with what may be the most important response in our passage tonight. He says, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, he says, Jesus is declaring that death will not ultimately win. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through this. Then look at verses 5 and 6. John wants you to hear this. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when hearing about how ill Lazarus was, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, think about this. Like, Lazarus is literally on death's doorstep. The sisters send a message to Jesus because they know Jesus loves Lazarus and they also know that, he can, that Jesus can actually heal him. And then, because Jesus loves Lazarus and the sisters, he delays? Like, that doesn't make much sense to us. Like, certainly to the sisters and to us, if Jesus loved Lazarus, then why doesn't he drop everything and go to him? Why is Jesus delay, delaying actually going to Lazarus? Right, if you knew your sibling or your parent or your roommate were on their deathbed, I don't know, maybe not your roommate, but uh, I hope it might. Go love your roommate, okay? But like, if, like, you would drop everything and you would, you would leave wherever you were, no matter what you were doing, you would go in order to be with them. But instead, because Jesus loved, he waited, and things got worse, and Lazarus actually died. And I want you to feel the tension in these verses. Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus led to disappointment. And you'll see this in the way that they interact with Jesus. Both Mary and Martha 
Say, Lord, if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. Jesus loved them enough to disappoint them. It sounds like a paradox. And how can that be? Why does Jesus wait and therefore let things get worse? Um, there's, there's a comedian named uh, Louis C.K. And there's a time when he went uh, actually on the show Conan. And he's sharing about this story about his dog. And he had recently adopted this 70-pound dog and, and ended up taking it to the vet. And the doctor was explaining to, to Louis like, all of the dog owner protocols. And he tells him, he's like, look, Louis, make sure that the dog doesn't eat chocolate. Because if it eats chocolate, then it's going to die. But if your dog like, happens to eat chocolate, make sure you, you give it hydrogen peroxide. Because apparently hydrogen peroxide doesn't let the dog ingest the chocolate and actually throws up. And Louis's like, okay, whatever. So, of course, six months later, he comes home and discovers that his dog has just eaten a giant bar of Polish dark chocolate. And he starts panicking, and he does not have hydrogen peroxide. So he puts a leash on the dog, and he's running down the streets of New York City to the local pharmacy. And he runs to the pharmacy, and he buys hydrogen peroxide. And he walks outside, and he's, hand, he's like holding this bottle. He's like, how, how do, like, what do I do with this? Like, the dog, the dog is not going to drink this. So he, he goes up to the dog, and he starts pouring it in its snout. And it sniffs, and like, like, does not like it. And then he tries again, and it's getting worse, and the dog's like biting at him. And then he crawls on top of the dog like an alligator that's like thrashing. And he's like throwing all of this hydrogen peroxide in the nose and the mouth of this dog, punching it in the stomach, trying to get it to throw up. And he looks up, and there are like hundreds of people on the sidewalk in New York City staring at him, like honking at him, yelling at him, like, what are you doing? And he's yelling back, back to them, I'm trying to save her life. And she ends up throwing up, and the dog survives, uh, like, thankfully. But in reflecting on, on that story, he tells Conan, he was like, look, from the dog's point of view, and from everyone else's point of view, it just looked like I went nuts, like I was trying to kill her. But what, what I was actually doing was I was actually trying to save her. And that's what's going on here. See, to Mary and Martha's limited point of view, to our reason. Jesus' waiting seems cruel to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But actually, he is loving them and saving them through it. Jesus knew that it was time to give Mary, Martha, and Lazarus something bigger, something better. They wanted a temporary fix, but Jesus knew they needed an eternal solution. They wanted healing. Jesus knew that they needed resurrection. And I really want you to consider this. Because if you, if you are not a Christian tonight, if you walked in and you're struggling with Christianity, consider this question. Can your God, whatever your God is, can he, he or she like, disappoint you? Like some of you have implicitly or explicitly walked away from God because you begged him to come through for you. You begged him for friends. Jesus, I came to you for friends, but I'm more lonely than I ever could imagine. You begged him for the depression to stop. Jesus, the medicine and the counseling, it's just not working. It's getting worse. You begged him for your parents not to split up. And your painful experiences haven't gotten better. They've actually gotten worse. And so you say, like, what's the point? Or for some of you tonight, maybe it's actually the enemy. Jesus, I pray that my grandmother and my friend's cancer would go away. They never did. They died. Why? 
Well, just consider tonight that if your God can never disappoint you, then it has to be a God that is fashioned in your own image. It has to be a God that only works according to the ideas of your finite mind. Or maybe it's just easier to altogether say there is no God at all. And what happens is just chaos. Everybody just has to figure it out for themselves. But what Scripture and what tonight's passage holds out for is that there is one who, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, actually loves you. And there's one who actually knows what he is doing in your life. And there must be a reason for the waiting. Uh, Nancy Guthrie, who's a wife and mother, and she's a really well-known author um, who's written some great works on suffering. Uh, She tragically lost both of her children, Gabe and Hope, uh, to a fatal genetic syndrome right after they were born. And she did an interview with the Gospel Coalition on ministering to people and their suffering. And she said this, One of the best things we can do is pray. Not only pray that God will remove the suffering or lighten the load, which are good and right things to pray for, but instead, but instead of stopping there, we should pray that God will actually accomplish a great work through our suffering or through our loved ones' suffering. And she uses the example of John 9, which is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither his man, neither this man nor his parents. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, one of the most helpful ways to wait and pray for one another in our suffering is that God would accomplish a great work in and through us. Because even though we may never know the why behind our suffering in this life, the pattern we find all throughout Scripture is that God promises that he will use the suffering of his people for his good purposes. And our prayers should reflect that for one another. His waiting and our suffering is never useless. It's never pointless. It's never meaningless. It's always purposeful. It's always meaningful. You see, Jesus' waiting those two days while Lazarus suffered and died was preparing to display the ultimate purpose for why he came. Jesus was after something bigger and even better than healing. Even when Mary and Martha couldn't see it Why? Because He understands our greatest need to be forgiven and washed clean from our sins. And He also understands our greatest enemy, death itself. He was after something for all those who trust in Jesus throughout world history will one day experience resurrecting life. And this is what He assures Martha. He says, Martha, I love you. And you need to know that I'm the resurrection and the life. And your brother, he will rise again. Romans 8.28 assures us, and we know that for those who love God, work, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And in that moment, Martha was losing her brother, and it did not feel good. It was painful and despairing and unnatural. But soon enough, Jesus promises that you will see the good. And our suffering is the same. Though it feels like death, can we join Martha? this evening and say, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's coming to the world. Even when we're eating our tears day and night, as the psalmist says, confused, and we cannot give an answer to our loss and our agony, can we join Martha? Can we join Job in the Old Testament who lost everything 
his family, his health, all of his wealth, his status, in unbearable suffering. Yet he still joins Martha in saying, I know my Redeemer lives. Can our lips proclaim that? Even when we don't know why we're lonely, even when we don't know why the depression won't go away, even when, even when why, we don't know why our parents are, are divorced, even when I don't know why my best friend's dad is murdered. It can't be because Jesus has quit loving us. It also cannot be that he doesn't know what he's doing. Somehow he is wanting to heal something deeper. Jesus is saying, Martha, you can trust me. Our helplessness is to bring us to him. Not only what he can do for us in fixing our temporary needs, but Jesus is asked after our trust in himself. And hear me say this. While this is true, we still grieve the real agonizing pain and brokenness of this world. And Jesus himself shows us this in our next point. Jesus weeps in verses 33 through 35. After this interaction with Martha, her sister Mary comes out to Jesus and she falls on her feet and weeps at his feet and says the exact same thing that Martha does. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then did you hear this in verses 32 and 34? Imagine this scene. Jesus looks around. Jesus looks at a woman whom he loves. And he sees all of these people weeping with her. And it moves him in his spirit. And he begins to weep. And this is really incredible. Because Jesus shows us here what the heart of God is like. He walks into the scene of tremendous sorrow and he bursts into tears. This is God Emmanuel, God with us, weeping with Mary, weeping in real sorrow. His heart is broken at what, the, what death has done. Jesus, God himself, enters into this broken and sorrowful, sorrow-filled world and sees what death has done and sees this crowd and he weeps. And what does the crowd say when they see this? Some of them that respond in skepticism. But others more accurately say, see how he loved them. See how he loved Lazarus. Yes, how do I know that Jesus loves me in this broken world? Because of his tears. One of my favorite passages in the Chronicles of Narnia um, comes from the magician's nephew. Diggory, the main character, uh, is in Narnia. But throughout his adventure there, there's one thing that is constantly looming in his mind. It's his mother, who is deathly ill back in our world. And he keeps thinking that this Aslan character will be the key to healing her. And so he finally encounters Aslan. And when he finally encounters him, he just blurts out almost uncontrollably, please, please, won't you cure mother? And then the story says this. Diggory looked up and saw something that surprised him more than anything else in his whole life. The great and fierce lion, the wonder of wonders. His head was bent down, and great big shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big compared to Diggory's that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than, than he was himself. How can you know that God loves you in the midst of waiting, amidst the pain getting worse, amidst death? 
Look at Jesus. He's cried out with you and for you. Gaze upon His compassion. He's grieved by the pain, the suffering, and the decay going on in, in your life and in the world, the good and beautiful world that He created. Psalm 56, 8 tells us that God has, count, has kept count of your tossings and your sorrow. He's put your tears in a bottle. When you come to Jesus with your sorrow, you will see that He is more grieved and more sorry about what is going on in your life than you are. Once you become a father, you'll actually experience that, a father or a mother, when you feel that for your kids. Whatever your kids are experiencing, you will experience that a million, to the millionth degree. Whatever pain and sorrow they're experiencing, you will taste that. You see, the Lord has to be. He has to be more sorrowful than we are. Because His love is more pure than ours. See, this is the same God of the Old Testament that when God hears the cry of His people in, in slavery in Egypt, in Exodus 2.25, it tells us that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I know that some of you in this room have been, have been abused. And it's awful. And it's evil. And you've experienced the death and the decay of being used. And you need to weep over it. And see that Jesus' tears are mixed with yours. And Jesus is more sorry and more grieved about what has been done to you than you are. And He knows what it's like to be used and abused. Some of you grew up with one parent or in a really broken home. Man, it hurts. And you've lived a life where things just don't ever seem to come easy. And you need to weep. And know that your tears mix with Jesus. And that He is sadder and more grieved about how hard it's been. He's, he sees you and He knows. And some of you can hardly get out of bed in the morning. Your soul is numb and callous. And sometimes you can't even explain it. Let Jesus' tears mix with yours. He is more grieved about the damage of his, of his world, about His image bearers, than we are. More than we can even begin to imagine. And He's wept with you. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. And He sees and He knows. See, not only does Jesus weep, but it tells us that He's deeply troubled. Welling tears quickly turns into swelling rage, a holy hatred, a righteous anger, and this leads us to our next point, Jesus' wrath, in verses 33 and 38. And this is really interesting, okay? And I think beautiful when you begin to see it. Did you see how twice it says that Jesus is deeply moved? Well, just notice, if, if, right, translating anything from one language to another is, is difficult to do. Right? It's hard to capture sometimes. And the New Testament was written in its original language, Greek. And translating this word from Greek into English is, was, is difficult, right? You may have different translations. But the word literally means that Jesus is agitated. He's angry. It's a word that is used to describe the noise a horse makes when, it's, when he's angry. Imagine a war horse getting ready for battle and beginning to snort and bristle in anticipation, adrenaline, and anger. That's that word, deeply moved. And this teaches us that that the God of the Bible is not a God to, to be trifled with, but a God whose love is so jealous, so overwhelmingly protective, so unimaginably fierce, that we don't want to begin to think about the wrath that He wields over that which He hates. And what He hates most is death. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that death is the last enemy. 
So when Jesus looks at the way death has decayed in this world, the way death has wreaked havoc over the people that he loves, he's ready to do battle. He snorts with rage. Uh, I heard a, a story from my mentor tells a story of his best friend's brother who um, when he was in high school, he got wrapped up in drugs and was running around town with some of these drug dealers. And one night, he just never came home. My friend said that the family was gathered in the house and they were worried sick, crying. And then a message got back to his father. The son was actually still at the drug dealer's house. And so his dad grabs a baseball bat and he gets in the car. And he immediately drives over to the house. Bristling with anger, he walks up to the door, bat in hand, and says, I'm coming to get my son back. And all of the drug dealers back out of his way, and he walks in and he drags his son back home. What is God like? How can you know God loves you if it's the weight, the pain, and the decay of death? Look at Jesus. He weeps. And he is angry at what death and sin are doing to this world. And he looks at death and says, how dare you? I'm going to wage war with you. And I'm going to get my people back. And here's the good news for us tonight, transitioning to our last point here. Not only does Jesus wait, not only does he empathize with his people and weep, not only is he enraged over the consequences of death, but he actually does something about it. Jesus wins. In verses 30, 39 through 44. And I love this. Because Jesus, with tears standing his face, full of swelling rage, walks up to the place of death, Lazarus' tomb. And in verse 43, he cries out, The Lion of Judah roars. Lazarus, come out. And immediately, death is rolled back. Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, comes walking out, fully alive, wrapped like a mummy expecting to stench with the odor of death, but instead is the aroma of life. Yes, Jesus cries. Yes, he rages. But you need to know that Jesus can and has done something about it. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and life. And now he shows it. Jesus' life itself brings life to a dead man by the sheer power of his word. A place of grief and mourning suddenly turns into a place of celebration and joy. Early in D.L. Moody's pastoral ministry career, he was, he was a young preacher, and early in his career, he, had, he was asked to preach a funeral. And he had no idea what he was going to say, so he just decided to go to the Gospels and try and find a funeral sermon from Jesus so that he could basically just copy it. But all he could find was that every time Jesus showed up at a funeral, he broke up the funeral with a resurrection party. And then Moody realized, maybe that's the point. Jesus is resurrection life. He can restore decaying relationships with friends. He can restore hope amidst a despair and depression. Jesus can heal deep wounds of abuse and addiction. Wherever you smell death and decay around and in you, bring it to Jesus. You may have to wait, and it might be a long haul, but eventually that, de that decay will turn into a place of life and celebration. Right, we didn't read it, but the next section in your Bible, if you have your Bible, is, is probably labeled the plot to kill Jesus. And in verse 53, we're told that from, from that day on, 
many of the religious leaders' plans was to put Jesus to death. That this is the last great miracle that John records before Jesus' crucifixion. And notice what this means for Jesus. Look at what John is saying. Jesus bringing resurrection to Lazarus meant a death sentence for himself. Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the binding of his hands and feet means Jesus will be bound hand and foot to a cross. Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb means Jesus was going to be buried in the tomb. You see, the way Jesus is, is going to defeat death is by taking it on himself. You see, if, if Jesus weeps and rages over the brokenness of this world, if he is doing battle with sin and death, here's the reality for all of us, all of us this evening. Is that at some point we have to say, oh no, that means that I'm a part of the problem. Because I'm a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus says, everyone who believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest, will take our place. Jesus will take the penalty for our sin and rebellion and defeat death with his own death. And here's what that means for us today. What that means is that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, if you have let his death be your death, if he has taken the penalty of your sin, then you can know that, that even death, that, that even when death is at your doorstep, which it is coming for all of us, it will never separate you from the love of God. You see, what happens to Lazarus is just a little foretaste. It's an appetizer of what is coming for all of us who trust in Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus removed the sting of death, then what that means is that one day he will return in a resurrected body. And all those throughout all of history who have trusted in his life, death, and resurrection, all those bodies lying in a grave, Jesus will roar, come out. And just as he called Lazarus by name, he will roar, Ben, come out. George, come out. Mercy, come out. And death will be destroyed forever. And it will be like you've awoken from a sleep. And you will enter the new heavens and the new earth with resurrected bodies. And you will wipe away every tear from your face with no more sin, no more decay, no more depression, no more abuse, and no more death. Forever and ever with life with Jesus, life itself. Um, I'll end with this. Okay. Winston Churchill... Uh, he actually arranged his own funeral. And at the end of the service, Churchill planned a really unusual event. Because when they said the benediction of his service, a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral on one side played the song Taps, which is the universal signal that the day is over. You guys in the court, you will know that. You've heard it often. But after the song Taps was played, there was a long pause. And then another bugler on the other side of St. Paul's Cathedral played the song Reveille, which is the military wake-up call. It was Churchill's way of communicating that while we say goodnight here, the resurrection allows us to say good morning. Why? Because of the resurrection as Christians. Whenever we hear 
the bugle taps. We will always hear the wake-up call of Revelation. Waiting amidst the pain is hard. Living in a broken world is hard. But on that day, when you see Jesus smile, all the trumpets will sound. When everything is healed and the eternal party has begun that death will never touch. And I promise you on that day, you will say, it was worth the wait. And I would, I would have done it no differently. What a Savior. Jesus' resurrection and life. Isn't this good news you wish were true, even if you don't believe it tonight? To know we have a God who weeps over the brokenness of, the world, of this world, and a God who rages in anger over it, but who has done something about it by giving us his own resurrection life. Do you believe it? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, you promise us that because of your life, death, and resurrection, we can now join Paul in rejoicing and mocking death by proclaiming, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.